Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to one of a few podcasts left to run in 2020. What a year it's been uh, and today's podcast and the rest of them for this year are some pretty fascinating insights and conversations which I'm looking forward to sharing with you. But on to today's episode with Dr. Zach Seidler, understanding masculinity and the impact it can have on men's mental health. Despite being less likely to seek help, men are at the greatest risk of suicide. Blokes make up an average of six out of every eight suicides every single day in Australia. One man committed to supporting men's mental health is this week's podcast guest, Dr. Zach Seidler. Zach is a clinical psychologist and the director of health professional training at Movember and a research fellow with Origin at the University of Melbourne. He has devoted the past five years to the goal of reducing the staggering male suicide rate treating and researching men's mental health with over 25 published peer review articles. Tune in to find out more about Zach's experience in men's mental health and how he is creating the world's first online program to train mental health practitioners to engage men who are undertaking treatment. Hello listeners and thanks for joining me for another episode and today it gives me great pleasure to introduce Zach Sideline. Zach, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sam. No worries, mate. I appreciate the time and thanks for coming in and telling us a lot, hopefully, about what you've been up to because I know you've been up to a lot of stuff lately and looking forward to hearing all about that. But, mate, let's start back. Uh, give us a bit of context. Uh, where did you grow up? What was it like growing up? Tell us a little bit about yourself. For sure. I grew up, I'm a Bondi boy. So uh, um, I'm, I've been very lucky to uh, to call North Bondi home for, you know, the first 25 years of my life it was a it was a, a pretty damn good upbringing i can i can tell you that Man, um all my mates within a couple k's of, of my house you know just ride around um i'm i'm a beach bum i'm an addict i swim every day um i can't surf really i can't i don't really know where my feet are in comparison i'm like six foot three so i got no idea wow. where my where my feet are in comparison to my head so that's never been a thing um, and as a non-blonde haired, blue-eyed dude, it just doesn't it doesn't fit the mold. So um but but I love the community. You know, I go swimming every day with these old codgers who, you know, in their in their budgie smugglers. It's a good. it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And um yeah, so I, I've I was here for, for most of most of my life and then I moved down to Melbourne last year to to take up this job at, at Movember and the University of Melbourne um after finishing my PhD at at Sydney Uni and, you know, spending 10 years or so studying there. I thought it was time for a change. Um, so it was Melbourne or Vancouver and I'm not I'm not into the cold. So I chose Melbourne, which turned out to be 
bloody cold anyway. <laughs> and then um, and then COVID hit, and I and I bailed back to Sydney because I thought I may as well hang out here and and wait it out. And damn, that was it. That was a good decision. <laughs> Mate, what a, a great decision for that. Uh, and, mate, I'm keen to hear about, about COVID and, and your role, obviously, now with Movember and stuff. Tell me, with, with growing up at Bondi, was the community, was it a good community? Was, uh, I mean, not too many have spent most of their life living in Bondi. Uh, it seems very transient. Think, yeah. It's, it's, re- it's really strange. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of bad press, I guess, in many ways about the about the community here. Everyone's just walking around in, in fitness wear continuously, and uh, you know, drinking nine dollar chai lattes. But um, when when you're inside it, and um, you kind of get to pick and choose, I guess, what you decide to to play into. And we have a, you know, it's an awesome. I'm you know, I'm a lifesaver here as well, and so I'm I, I'm. I pick and choose what I like about the joint. And yeah. so going to the beach at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday, you're not going to run into models and, you know, <laughs> it's just not it's not how it, how it works. It's just a beautiful landscape with um, the true, um, you know, community coming out um, at, at those times. And, you know, I'm, I've had all my best mates since I was three. I just saw a picture the other day of my, me in preschool with five of my best mates who are still my best mates now. So wow. um, I'm really damn privileged to have that. And I think it's it's pretty unique as well um, for guys especially, and we can get into this around around friendships and around companionship and um, to maintain those friendships over time as well. Mate, that sounds like a great way to, to grow up and uh, obviously you've got some core groups uh, of friends there that, uh, that means a lot, the circle of friends obviously, and especially during times like COVID when there's – uh, a bit of isolation and stuff happen, happening, making sure we keep that connection going. But tell me, tell me, Zach, what what's, uh, you, you, what got you into mental health? Like, why why did you go into it in the first place? So I, I guess I just painted a pretty rosy picture, um, which is not obviously the the truth when it comes to the complexity of everyone's life. Um, and while I'm fully aware of um, how good I had it and how um, lucky I was to have such a, a strong family and, and you know, and community growing up. Um, I got into mental health. Uh, so my journey's pretty, yeah, up, up and down here and there. So I, I always decided when I was, I think I was 15, um, my grandma, who's a, a Holocaust survivor, I've got four Holocaust survivor grandparents. She right? lived she lived really close to Sigmund Freud in Vienna, um, hey, pre, pre the war, yeah, which is pretty cool. So when I was like 15, she gave me, like a, a set of, of his books and was like, check them out. Um, I was always, I did like drama. I, I had a lot of female friends as well growing up, which meant that uh, my emotional communication skills, I think were a bit uh, more developed than some of my other, my other male colleagues. And so I, I started to go, um, wait a second, people, people like talking about stuff to me. And, and, and I also just realized that I had a deep, deep curiosity for like people's behavior and, um, and, and their stories and why things happened. And if I think back to all of the books I read and the TV I watched, it was always like the deep dive character stuff. I was never into, and I still speak about this now, never into fantasy. I never understood um, why people were into other worlds when ours was so damn complex. I was like, I can't even begin to understand my neighbor. Why am I going to look at goblins and, and dragons? It makes no sense. So um, 
that that really drove drove me towards um and i decided when i was like 16 i'm like i'm going to be a psychologist and um and thankfully somehow despite the uh the ups and downs i'm i'm here today but but really um you know my my family we had you know a, a couple of of battles with with various mental health issues and um sadly like seven years ago my dad took his own life yeah um and he was a gp in the in the community he was you know extremely well known um you know went around and talked about well-being for for doctors and um really couldn't obviously help himself when it came down to it um and so i was already on the path i think i was it was just before I did honors. And so it kind of, it, it lit the flame, I guess, in many ways. I was already hopefully destined to do this stuff, but um, yeah. it made it much, uh, much more motivating and that the, the passion was, um, was strengthened that I'm lucky that um, I had the support around me to make that happen rather than crumble, which I think happens in many instances. Mate, that would have been, you know, devastating and, and sorry for your loss. I, I mean, obviously it impacted your family, your friends there, and the community in Bondi being such an integral part of the community. Uh, I mean, looking back on it, did you do you have do you now know what you know? Do you have a look at signs, or is there anything like that that you? Um, for sure. Well, this is this is now my life. Hey, I I, I literally specialize in male suicide, so. Um, you know, I, I gave up five years of my life to doing a PhD and a master's, and now I train clinicians on um, looking for, for signs and warning signs and symptoms and, and how to respond and intervene when it comes to male suicide. Um, and I'm sure we can talk about that a bit more. But yeah, my dad was unwell for a, a really long time, but there was never a discussion about about suicide. There was always, you know, he's, he was in and out of hospital. He was on meds for a very long time. Um, but he was he was so high functioning and he could just turn it on you know when when he needed to so everyone everyone believed that he was going to be okay yeah. and he had such deep shame for what was going on um because everyone believed him to be such a high achiever and and um you always, it's always those people that uh are believed to live up to such high expectations you know and and they see themselves so differently they see themselves as as a failure or otherwise and it's that um distinct dichotomy between their self-view and the world's view of them uh, that actually causes them more pain really often so um no matter what we did uh you know he he battled for a really long time and i'm proud that he did because i got to grow up and thankfully i got to know him for as long as i did yeah. um but yeah, there were there were plenty of signs. Looking back now, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't already a practicing clinician because it would have. It's so difficult when you're trying to work with with family. I know that now, um, but uh, being a kid at the time, it was. Yeah, it was really tough. There's a there's a shift in the dynamic when you're the child trying to parent your parent. You know, get yeah. him out of bed. Yeah. I wouldn't begin to know what it was like. Um, so, I, I mean, it's uh, – and, and obviously this is the reason you're into the field, like you mentioned before, and and not just into it, but you're right into this and you've made it your mission to really focus uh, on male, male-centred male mental health treatment. Tell us, you went through uh, University of Sydney, was it, or New South Wales? 
University of Sydney, uh, and then you, and then with your honours, and then did you then go uh, do your your masters? Mm, yeah, I went. So I did the whole the whole shebang in a row without a break, which is in hindsight a bit insane. But I um yeah I went I did undergrad and then I did honours. My honours was looking at um, male cancer survivors and looking at sexual communication in in them post post um treatment and why if you just had prostate cancer um you know your sex life drops off and then your quality of life drops off and what came out of all of those interviews with these you know old blokes was that they had a sense of a loss of masculinity and i was studying uh, i did gender studies as well i did a gender studies major i was always intrigued by masculinity um and the more i read within this field i was like oh everyone's talking about about femininity and about um, queer culture and about and and there was just such little scholarship about masculinity and um, and then I started to delve into it and I was like oh it's just been men avoiding themselves <laughs> for this amount of time and feminism was just a, a you know a 60s and 70s uh, group of women going who are we and why are we disenfranchised and why do we have no power and what can we do differently and men have just gone we have power everything's great, we're sweet, we're not going to look at it. And now we go, wait a second, 75% of suicides are male, you're dying six years younger than women, things aren't that good. Maybe you should start to interrogate what's actually happening. Yeah. And statistics, like you just mentioned, they're not getting, they're not getting better. Uh, and I mean, I want to get into that as well, but tell me, did you go to the Man Island project? Did that start? Was it? Was that first, or did you think? Did you go to November first? I mean, how how did you get into where you are right now? For sure. So did that honors really got fell in love with with masculinity, which is a strange strange <laughs> thing to say, but I, uh, it's it's my shtick. It's what I'm all about. And so I did that, and then straight after, I was like, um, I want to. I want to look into this more. And so I kind of applied for a PhD on a whim because I didn't think that I'd get into the master's without it combined um, because the university gets a bit out of you if you do a PhD. So I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll look for the combined master's of clean psych and PhD together. Um, and I, I, I managed to, to somehow sneak in, which was, which was great. And so um, I, I started on a, uh, my research project while I was doing my clinical training, which was really looking at um, depression in men and, and help seeking, why men don't seek help. That's literally how my project began. I was like, men don't seek help. That's a really under understandable stereotype. Sure, that's the way that it works. Um, so I'm now going to start to understand why that is. And um, that's kind of where the Man Island Project came from. I went... Um, there are too many PhDs going on these days. No one knows what anyone's research is. I'm going to market mine and I'm going to, I'm going to turn it into a brand of sorts and try to separate it so that men come and talk to me um, because that was the main thing, that if I need to create an understanding of what men's experiences are, I need to get to the source. And yeah. no one was talking to them. They were just making up assumptions. And so I started to do this research, you know, and it, and it took me an incredible journey uh, from that initial question, which is why men don't seek help, to going men do seek help and they're seeking help more than ever before. Um, they are just simply not getting what they want and what they need. And so I spoke to so many guys who'd been in therapy. I'd spoken to, you know, all of these, these men who had um, experienced 
depression, suicidality, who had attempted suicide. And I'm meanwhile doing my clinical training at the same time and going, wait a second, no one is talking about the fact that there is a clear difference in the way that men and women talk about issues, present to, to psychotherapy, you know, the way that they understand uh, their own emotional experience. There is a huge difference there based on the way that they're brought up and no one is talking about it. I had not not more than five minutes in my two years of master's training talking about gender. Um, and so that really lit, lit the fire in my belly around going, we need to train people about how to deal with this stuff because guys are coming in and they're going, you're trying to fit me into this box here about what I should be and how I should talk. And I don't want to do that. And now we know that men drop out, you know, much more than women do when it comes to, to therapy. And um, we've got a, a horrible statistic, which is that, you know, 60% or so of guys who, um, you know, eventually suicide have actually been in treatment. There's this stereotype that men who, who, who take their own lives, it happens out of the blue. They've never been in contact with us before. And that's just, that's just crap. It's not true. We have heaps of opportunities for interaction. While it might be a small window of opportunity, we can do better. And so I shifted as I moved through the, the project. Um, and the Man Island Project really turned away from, men, it's your fault, <laughs> start changing, to the onus is on the system. It's on our, us as clinicians. It's on us as researchers to find out what men want and to provide something that works for them. Mate, that's, it's such a profound shift in that. I mean, you think about it, you think, well, it's the culture of men just being, you know, uh, it's a weakness to ask for help, that sort of thing, to you're saying when you started actually talking to the people, to the men out there, you actually found the reverse was happening. They were actually seeking help, but the system uh, was letting them down in the, in the responses and the services that they were providing. Exactly. And so where, where this kind of led is that, uh, you know, I finished up my PhD and the whole, uh, the whole uh, final chapter of it was really focused on how are we going to train clinicians? Because, um, you know, trying to, trying to change the system is a very complex thing to do. And so I go, all right, education is something that, you know, psychologists, social workers, counsellors, we love it. We love being challenged. And I'm so lucky that I'm in a profession and surrounded by colleagues who have a, such a deep desire for knowledge, you know? It's like we're the least offensive people when it comes to this stuff because we know what we don't know um, and, and we're very happy to be challenged. And so um, it didn't work to challenge men and it continues to not work. To continue to push them and tell them that they don't know what they're doing just disengages them. They move on the, over there, they get really shamed and they never come back. So we need to change that system. So that was the final part of my PhD. And then really um, I, I somehow got into a conversation with Movember. I'd, I'd hopefully been on their radar and to anyone doing a PhD, that marketing situation, creating a website and that type of thing, it works wonders. I never knew in my first year that it was going to lead me here, but I separated myself on purpose and um, ended up in a in a you know in a call with the global director of mental health at, at Movember, and then ended up talking to their um, you know various directors around the fact that places like Movember and uh, and Headspace and Are You Okay and all of these incredible charities 
have a really they have a male centric perspective often as well, where they go, we need more men to seek help. Everyone is saying that. Everyone says it left, right, and center. You know, charities and Beyond Blue especially has been has been harping on about this for for a decade now. The problem is, is that if you push more men into a system that doesn't work for them, you're actually failing them completely because you're promising them the panacea. You're promising them something that's that's if you just get in there, we'll close the door and then you'll come out and it will all be good. But what really happens is that we're just closing the door and pretending that everything's fine. When in fact, we need to open that door, we need to walk inside and we need to go, what the hell is going on in here? And we need to rip that apart and start again. And so that's literally my elevator pitch when I sat down with the Movember team. I said, I know you work um, in the prevention and early intervention space. And I know that you really want to uh, work at grassroots and getting boys who are in you know, footy clubs to, to talk about what's going on and resilience and all that. We love that. There is a really strong place for that. But if you build up these skills for them and then you funnel them into a healthcare system that just doesn't understand them, that's not, that's not good enough. And so um, I challenged them and they came to the table and they said that they wanted to fund, fund my work. And so um, I came on as um, director of mental health training in mid last year. And um, it's been a whirlwind. It's been incredible. Um, and we're creating now this, this online training. So Man Island has been subsumed and, and rebranded um, and, and has become men in mind, which is really the, I found myself saying this mantra of sorts, you know, in all of these conferences, which was like, we need to create a mental health system with men in mind. And I was like, wait a second, that's, that sounds like a cool brand name. <laughs> and so I went, I went to the branding gurus at, at Movember and we built that up and we've, um, we're working on now finalizing this, this five hour training program, you know, that's, that's funded by Movember and we're going to f- research it. We're going to evaluate it. We're going to make sure it works. And then we're going to get it out to everyone worldwide to make sure that the system can adapt accordingly so the men in mind program is uh, a program to edu uh, not to educate but to is it to help clinicians mental health professionals do a better job at understanding masculinity and how to best deliver services so that they're not um the system won't fail them and then they're not just going to uh you know quit or not come back to seek more more help and services is that right Exactly. So it's an it's an online program, and it's it's you know continuing education. That's really what it what it yeah. looks like. But it's focused on. It starts out with what is masculinity. Everyone believes that they know what it is, that it's general knowledge. Um, but we really miss the mark when it comes to to the diversity of masculinity and how important it is in men's mental health journeys. And then it really delves into the nitty gritty of. Um, engaging guys, the really key um, findings that I've had in my own research um, and others. I'm lucky to work with incredible colleagues in, in Australia, Canada, the US. And so we all work on this, wow. this research together, delving into what um, men's experiences are and learning from those. And then, it, uh, you know, towards the end, the final few modules are really looking at what does depression look like in men? Um, because we know that it looks really different depending on the guy. It can really manifest in anger, in irritability, in substance use, risk-taking. It's not that crying, you know, on a couch eating ice cream while watching a rom-com stereotype. Dudes will punch a hole in a wall before they'll cry sometimes, and they're both a cry for help. 
And I think that that needs to be seen for what it is. And so we need to be able to better respond. And then the final module really focuses on on male suicide, on on responding to it, on looking for it, on uh, on how it you know how it comes about, and what we can do differently um, to try to s- stop these men slipping through the cracks. I, it makes sense uh, when you when you spell it out like that. Tell me, Zach, what is the definition that you've embraced for masculinity? <laughs> Welcome to the, uh, it, the impossible, <laughs> impossible question. So, it, it, really, did, what I focus on personally is masculinities, which is which is where the research has gone. Which is like, if we talk about masculinity, you end up in this really, um, it's a cul-de-sac of sorts, um, and it and it ties into this idea that it's hard won and easily lost. It's, it's like this precarious state that you're constantly trying to achieve and you're never going to get there because it's just, it's just, um, it's unattainable. It's, it's, it's constantly you know, elusive. Yeah, exactly. And that's really problematic for lots of, lots of guys and they feel that. And so we, we get so many young guys who you talk to them about, about misogyny, about homophobia, about all of these, you know, about power over women, about needing to be a breadwinner, whatever it may be, self-reliance. And you go, um, do you believe in these things? And they go, no, 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 no way. New, new young guys go, no, nah, definitely not. That's that's my grandpa's generation. And I go, all right, do you feel the pressure to live up to these? And they go, 100%. And so there's the difference. You've got these guys going, I don't believe in this shit at all. No way. And then they go, oh, I, but I wake up in every waking moment. Is, I'm trying to be that. Uh, yeah. Exactly, trying to be that. So it's like we need to work away from that. And so my definition of masculinity, my aspirational definition of masculinity is focused on flexibility mm. which is that stoicism self-reliance independence all of that stuff is awesome in a time and place and um you do not want um to be a guy who is rigidly conforming and blindly conforming to this masculine stereotype which does not serve you instead if you're a firefighter and you're going in. We need you to be stoic when you're when you're running into a house that's on fire. I don't want you breaking down in the middle of the house. What I want is for you to come outside and then discuss what happened and then be vulnerable. You can have the stoicism, but it needs to be backed up by something else. And so it's a matter of adapting um, to where you're at. And that's for fathers, that's for grandfathers, it's for leaders in the in the business world. You can't just go. I'm going to be hard. I'm going to be strong, and that's all I'm going to be because it just doesn't work when you've got a colleague who's breaking down, you need to show some bloody compassion. You need to show yeah. your own vulnerability and model that. And you all have the capacity for it. And men need to just be told that they have it within them rather than, oh, men don't know how to talk. Men don't know how to emote. All that is doing is perpetuating the problem. Long answer. It's, it's an interesting point though, like because consciously you were saying that people weren't thinking that that was something that they accepted as what, to be their truth but subconsciously mm-hmm. for whatever reason all their thought patterns their beliefs uh quite contrary to what they were initially saying so it's amazing that difference and it's that awareness isn't it because until you actually bring it up like that you almost don't sit down and think about this stuff on your own do you it's not until you spell it out like that you think oh hang on he's got a point you don't believe guys that. Don't, guys don't think about gender they don't think about masculinity you talk about masculinity and they go oh i've got a dick that's literally all that is spoken about. If I, I've, I've, I've interviewed 2,000 men and like over 50% of them, I say, what's your masculinity? And they say my genitals. It's like it's, you ask a woman what their femininity means to them and you're going to get 
paragraphs, you know, <laughs> because when they're 12, they start to go, what is happening here? Why am I being responded to in this way and that way? Men need to come to the, to the table here. We need to start to go, why are we the way that we are? We need to interrogate this stuff and reflect on it. I shouldn't be at conferences surrounded by 50 women who want to talk about masculinity. You know, mm. I love it, but there should be men around who want to work out what this thing is and where it comes from and why it behaves the way that it does. Because if we get young guys going, wait a second, I don't believe in this thing, but uh, I'm feeling really, really anxious about the fact that I'm not making enough money and I am not going to speak to my wife about it because I'm ashamed of whatever it is. And then suddenly I'm depressed and then suddenly I'm really angry and drinking a lot. And then suddenly I'm suicidal because I'm, I'm failing as a dad and as a, as a, you know, husband. And it's just this cycle of strain, you know, it's called gender role strain. There's a really good theory about it, which is that you're constantly trying to achieve something. It's unattainable. You fall short. And what you do is you try to maintain and regain, you know, that type of uh, power and privilege. And so you, you, try and be more dominant or you become an asshole at your work, you know, just trying to yeah. get back some of that masculine capital. Do you find that they're constantly, where you said before, they're constantly trying to achieve something. Do you also think that it's the fact that they actually never really thought they don't have a definition of what they're trying to achieve. So they're constantly striving, striving to achieve something they're never going to achieve because they don't actually know what it is they want to achieve, but they always feel like they're always forever trying to achieve it but they've never really mm. sat down and thought about what it is. Something. It's just this something yeah. that's in the ether. You know, it's just, it's, it's socialized. It's in the media. It's really basic and it doesn't, it doesn't have any depth that matches our real experience. And so they go, I don't actually know what this thing is that I'm chasing for sure. And what happens is we've got a huge vacuum. Um, there's just silence in this space. And so what happens is that people like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, um, Donald Trump come about and they go, here's a way to be a man. Mm. And you go, oh, that's simple. I'm just going to do that. And so how does it look? Well, he just he just doesn't excuse anything. And he um, comes about and shows unmitigated power. <laughs> and that looks like something I could do. So I'm just going to do that rather than where is a, a positive male role model with some nuance, with mm. some depth? That just doesn't happen. When We've got no positive male role models going on at the moment. So young guys are coming up and going, I don't understand what anyone wants from me. You're telling me to be vulnerable. You're telling me to be um, strong and self-reliant at the same time. How am I supposed to do both of those? They contradict one another. So I'm just going to give up. It's a good point. And I'd be interested to see what you think the role that masculinity plays in prevention. I mean, how do we need to better address prevention with regards to um you know the the gender gender sensitivity that that males need it's it's a huge thing and it's all i do you know I, i'm very lucky that i've had very minimal dropout as a clinician because i call it out for what it is you know i talk about this stuff blatantly and and the guys come in and i say you might not be comfortable here we're going to make this work for you, but let's be really clear. Your masculinity is a strength here. It's not a, it's not a weakness. Just because this place feels foreign to you doesn't mean we can't make this work. And so I leverage their masculinity to my advantage. They want to risk take? Great. Take a risk on me. Take a risk on therapy. You know, you want to be um, self-reliant? 
awesome. We're going to find a way for you to use that self-reliance in a healthy way um, that's going to benefit you in therapy. And really what it comes down to is that you want to be brave and courageous and look after your family. Well, let's be honest, that means looking after yourself. And so I challenge them. I challenge their masculinity. I question it. And I, and I make sure that they understand that it's not something uh, that should be a silent, um, you know, constantly bubbling away, stressing you out situation. It's something that we need to bring out into the room, look at, interrogate and um, use to our advantage. It's yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting when you put it like that. And do, do you ever sit there and pre-frame it and say, there's going to be times where you don't want to come back or where it's going to challenge you and you'll feel like it's not working or that you know, but um, I'm going to tell you now that those are the times where you need to more, most importantly to come back. Like, do you actually try and pre-frame it so that they, you anticipate that happening? So one of the main, the main outcomes from my research and something that I talk about now in great depth in my training is around and every webinar, every conference I ever go to is around expectations Men are walking into a foreign environment. You know, there's not very many good depictions of, of, of mental health treatment anywhere. You know, there's Woody Allen lying on a couch talking about mummy issues. That's all we've got lying around at the moment. So men don't know what they're walking into. So I make real clear what's going on, what's going to happen, how difficult it might be, how things might get worse before they get better, how much it's going to cost because that freaks guys out, how long it might take. And you just set it out from the outset and you say, this is what happens. You're not alone. Everyone I'm seeing today is going to go through the same thing. And what's really important is that you understand that you are in control here. You are the expert on your life. And so I'm just going to navigate. And so I want you to decide which path you want to go down. And I always use this metaphor. I say, I'm in the navigation seat. I'm going to say, here's a path. Here's a path. And you can decide if you want to go down the long one or the, or the short one, or if you want to just plow into a bloody tree. And the amount of guys that choose to do that just because they freak out or because it's too difficult, or they just start reversing really quickly. And that's, you know, the defensiveness and the fear and whatever it may be, but at least we can call it out. Yeah. And they really respond really well to that when you just say, Hey man, you're just doing that again. And we need to, to shift that up. Yeah. The subtle difference in early intervention uh, when you look at males, what's what's the major difference between obviously the, the different genders when you're approaching males? Early intervention just isn't a thing for men <laughs> at the moment, really. Um, men come in to see me in times of crisis. Um, you know, there's a reason that uh, we've got ambulance and, and ED responses to to men through the roof. It's like, I'm going to bottle this up. I'm going to wait it out. It'll be fine. And this is the same in physical health conditions. Men should not be dying of prostate cancer anymore. It is very easily treatable. You know, same with testicular cancer. These are some of the main, the main goals of Movember as well in the physical health space. If you get yourself tested, you're going to be all right, typically. And so um, it says a lot about the fact that I think women have a, uh, a really long running relationship with the healthcare system. You know, um, many women go in and have, you know, pap smears and, and Checkups, uh, blood tests. Lump checks, all of this stuff, gynecology, all of this stuff from a very young age. And, and men have no reason in their own minds to go and see a GP. So they've got no relationship. They don't necessarily trust the medical professionals. And, um, 
they just go, oh, I can just, I can just deal with this and see what happens. And so what I try to, to, to clarify is that you think that bottling it up now is going to mean that uh, you'll, be, you'll be right down the line. Well, in fact, if you really want to deal with it in two sessions, as they always want, mm-hmm. uh, come in when you're well. And let's give you some tools so when shit hits the fan, you've actually got the ability to deal with this. Because when you're not able to get out of bed, when you're drinking, you know, excessively or, or drug taking, it, you know how hard it is for us to come back from that, to get you to a status quo where we can just, um, you know, actually start to deal with a balanced equilibrium. It's, it's really, really tough. And so um, I always stress, and whenever I've gotten a client back to that point, I say, I don't want to see you next time when you've hit rock bottom. I want to see you for a six monthly checkup, just like you go to see the dentist. Yeah. This needs to be something that you work on. And that's what masculinity is about self betterment. Yeah. So it's really trying to change that perception and that culture, isn't it? To say, well, it, you know, if, if I'm not, if it's not urgent and I'm not, it's not an emergency, then I'll be sweet. But, but the problem there is that they're not actually seeking help until it's sometimes too late. Uh, and so trying to trying to make that shift i mean it's it sounds like a slow process but i mean it needs to happen Mm. it's going to take a long time there's no doubt and so many people have asked me you know we just found out a couple weeks ago that the male suicide rate in australia has gone from you know six men a day on average to seven men a day this is despite huge intervention this is despite huge funding Um, so we've now got more more men taking their own lives in in 2019 that is um because the data takes a while to trickle in this is pre-covid which is even more worrying um than than a decade prior so we've got more awareness we've got more eyeballs and ears open than ever before we're doing podcasts about this stuff it's never been spoken about before but it's not yet filtering into the community so it's gonna it's gonna take time and and i assume you know it it takes it takes cross-sector, it takes multiple different um, uh, disciplinary approach to make this happen. But, I mean, what do you think are the keys to make this more mainstream so that it's, we can get there quicker without having to go through more deaths? And like you said, 19 was seven. I mean, uh, with COVID around, it'd be interesting to see what the stats will be this year, but it's not looking great. Tell, mm. tell us about what you think is the, is the big thing. Because you're right, we've got so many communities out there, so many massive charities getting funding for this. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think is really not working? What's letting us down? I think there's a lot around um, the idea that just promoting awareness without actually boosting services accordingly. You know, we're very lucky that um, our government at the moment has taken mental health extremely seriously. And, you know, we've got a productivity commission that just came out showing that it's costing $220 billion, you know, uh, that we're losing when it comes to mental health and suicide um, within our communities. So it's very clear from even a capitalist perspective that this is not working for us. So it's a cross-sector situation, as you said. It's not only health. We need, you know, welfare to pick up its game. We need the education system to do better. We don't just need mindfulness in schools. We need more than that. We need actual early intervention. Um, You know, we need more psychologists and school counsellors than one per thousand students you know it's it's madness and so um it's it's definitely a cross-sector situation we need to get everyone on board to understand that this is a whole of society issue um and we also need this the community to come out not only when there's a death 
that's kind of what happens at the moment. You know, Movember knows this really well. We get and we're very lucky to have all of these supporters when we've had somebody in the community who's taken their own life and their family and friends get on board and fundraise for us. But it'd be really nice to have a huge community on board of people that are just naturally wanting to make change, not based on, you know, grief necessarily. It'd be great to just see um, the groundswell based on the fact that this is just something that needs to change and needs to change now. Mm. So tell us in the delivery of the services out there at the moment, the system, what do you think is what needs to improve to better service uh, males mm. for the well, treatment? First off, first off, think about your marketing of your of your you know your clinic or practice. Um, I went and just did a, a random inventory of fifty practices for fun. I went in as a as a spy in uh, in Sydney. Just looked at various you know psychologists and counselors and and the amount of butterflies the amount of like purple and pink uh brochures that women hate as well let's be really clear on that no woman wants to go into a place that is like sold as this that it just doesn't work and so what happens is that men come in uh they, firstly they see a website that doesn't uh, address them in any way then they come in they sit in the waiting room and there's just women's health magazines everywhere and they go oh, I don't belong here. That's great. So that's a massive issue to start with, but not definitely not the main one. It's just a starting point. Um, what it comes down to is you need to orient and educate these guys to the system. You need to make them feel welcome. You need to make them understand what's happening. You need to ask and allow time for, for, for questions and to be challenged as well as the, as the clinician. Um, and my training talks a lot about communication, about how to use language differently. If you, you couldn't tell I'm I swear quite a bit. I try to use humor where I can, metaphors. <laughs> um, so there's there's different ways of going about talking to certain guys and lots of guys talk differently as well. There's heaps of diversity. So not going, oh, here's this guy. You know, I had a huge Maori client come in the other week. He's got tats everywhere. He's the biggest dude I've ever seen in my life. And because thankfully I, in my head, I had just done a lecture that morning around this stuff. And so in my head I go, I cannot... Uh, begin to stereotype this guy because it's not going to end well for me. And so I just, I just went with it. I just allowed it. And within five minutes, he's bawling his eyes out and talking about his daughter. And it was just, it was stunning. You know, it's, he's a beautiful man. And, and to see that, that really could have been restricted if I'd, if I'd boxed him in. Um, yeah. So we need to open up those, those lines of communication, not, not shut them down. And judging people, I guess as well. Right. <clears throat> what tell us about because i mean we one of the big focuses on our stuff that we do is rural and remote so people in rural areas and i mean the masculinity side of that with uh you know that comes with living in rural areas i mean have you seen any studies or anything you've come across that that shows that masculinity and the ability to want to seek help in those areas is is harder uh, and more challenging yeah, it's, it's really, really problematic um, because if we've already got, uh, you know, wait list, cost, all of these, you know, structural systemic barriers that get in the way typically of guys in the city, you know, of seeing someone, 
you add the fact that I'm running my own farm. I don't have time to, to deal with this stuff. No one is going to be able to, to help me out. I've also only got one psychologist in the whole town and I sit in the waiting room and I see Bob and, and you know, Jerry over there as well. And it's like, oh, great. So there's goes my confidentiality. Um, thankfully, telehealth has now come to the, the table and that's, I think, hopefully going to really help some of these regional communities if the MBN can pick up its game. But um, yeah. what, what I think is that masculinity um, in rural and regional communities um, can look really different. Um, but we shouldn't box these guys in just because, you know, you're, you work in the agricultural space, you are this type of guy, you wear flannel, so you must be this type of guy. If anything, lots of those guys that I've seen from out there, they've got a lot of depth that no one gives them any time of day for, you know. And um, I think that, again, it's a matter of aspirational masculinity, trying to hand them the ability to do more, to 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 inspect and interrogate more about themselves um but it's it's damn tough from a from a systems perspective from a you know an awareness perspective um and also just when it comes down to it just the practicalities of of those guys seeking help um is really really complex and it's even more foreign to them um so you need to work much harder and get them clinicians that understand their experience that can begin to you know talk to them in a language that makes sense to them zach through your studies of masculinity i would have to assume that generational um, masculinity is playing a big part in this what is the role of that with from our parents grandparents passing it down and and is there a chance we can break the cycle of that unspoken expectation of uh, a way to behave, a way to be a man. Yeah, I wouldn't be here if I didn't if I didn't have hope. Um, and I think really all it comes down to is is literally shining a light. That's what it's all about. Um, bringing this stuff from the silence, from the darkness uh, that men have have. We've literally shut the door and held on to the doorknob for for dear life, being like, please, no one look at what's going on behind here. Um, not realizing that if we actually fling open the door, we're going to have a lot, not only to answer for, but a lot, there's a lot of benefit in doing that. There's a lot to gain. There's a lot of knowledge and power that we're going to have from actually looking into who we are. Generationally speaking, you know, if I look at my, my grandparents and my, my dad, and then all the way down, I hope my, my, you know, children are going to have a very different experience of, of fatherhood from me. And I think that um, it's important that the young blokes nowadays um, really question their their dads and their grandfathers. And even if, you know, I've had plenty of fights with with older, older men in my life and they don't um, necessarily come to the table, but just honing those skills and questioning yourself and, and challenging them, um, that's it's just about time that we do that. So I've got a lot of hope. I go to a lot of schools and talk to young blokes and and they've got way more capability and capacity for change than you could ever imagine. So it's it's going to be all right, I think. And, and so tell us a bit more about that awareness for boys um, and understanding the masculinity. Is there programs out there? Is there something that uh, you know that is that is coming through the curriculum, whether it's through the education system or or otherwise through community organisations that are actually helping boys to understand it. For sure. So it'd be lovely to get this on the on the curriculum, <laughs> but uh, like gender, you just think about sex ed and how 
crap that is. So I don't think we're going to get gender on the air. And anytime people talk about gender, then it becomes a hugely politicized issue, which is just such a shame. But yeah. um, that aside, they're incredible groups um, Australia-wide um, who I've been lucky enough to, to work with before um, who go into schools, uh, boys' schools mostly, and literally talk about what it means to be a man, what mental health looks like, how it affects men. And they are, um, you know, top blokes who are in New South Wales. There's Tomorrow Man. Um, who are largely in Victoria. There's Man Cave. Um, and, you know, they, they literally, they run uh, seminars at, at schools and they continuously go back. And I've got a lot of, a lot of researcher friends who, who evaluate the programs as well and show that they can actually shift some of this stuff in the young guys. So, um, again, really great progress. And Australia is leading the way when it comes to some of this stuff as well. So um, it's, it's really good to see. Yeah, that's great, and and if we, um, it's great that stuff's happening and that it's out there, and and schools are are embracing some of that stuff, uh, because something needs to be done at that age to try and help you know young boys uh, understand it a bit more. But if we go to COVID now, I mean, what are you what are you seeing with COVID? Uh, are you seeing that uh, more people are being isolated? You're seeing an increase in depression, anxiety with men, males. Tell us a little bit about what you're finding uh, coming out of mm-hmm. well hopefully coming out of COVID. Mm. There's a, there's definitely an increase in loneliness and social isolation. Hopefully, you know, we're in, we're in the lucky country, as we've always, we've always said, and, and it's never been clearer than right now um, that we've got a lot to be thankful for. Um, as you look at other parts of the world um, going into a, you know, dark winter with, uh, with, you know, pretty, pretty heavy rates of infection, which is going to be, you know, very problematic for them. So we're lucky that we're, we've got summer and we're, we're largely out of the woods. Um, but that aside, um, it's been really tough. And I think uh, the really important thing to consider here is that yes, while distress has gone through the roof, support has also gone through the roof. We've had camaraderie and togetherness um, that has kept uh, people hopefully safe and, and connected with one another. Um, what I'm really worried about is the next 12 to 24 months, to be honest. Um, we always know the research shows that after an earthquake, uh, it's not during the earthquake, it's not, you know, the weeks after, it's the months after that we start to see the ramifications of it. And we know that the unemployment rate is, is going to get to its height, you know, in, in the next coming months. So um, situational stresses for guys are a really problematic risk factor for mental health issues. And so, you know, relationship breakdown, financial distress, unemployment they really trigger guys very often and that ties in with masculinity again. So um, we need to be looking out and we're not out of the woods when it comes to this stuff at all. Uh, the mental health crisis, as you know, plenty of my colleagues have said, is going to be a, a second or third wave of this pandemic um, that we need to be looking out for and, and, and really bolstering our services to be able to respond to it. Yeah. And tell us, uh, with Movember, what what stuff are you up to now? You've spoken about the um, the Mind uh, Men in Mind program that you're hoping to roll out. Uh, when's that When's that happening? And and how can people find out about it? Um, lots Lots is going on, as as is expected at the Moustache Factory. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we've been we've been kicking on for seventeen years now. We've raised over a billion dollars. You know, that are funded over a thousand programs the world over where it's, it's an incredible movement. And I'm very lucky to be a, a part of. Um, and so, yes, the, the men in mind program, I'll chat about that in a second, but we've got other stuff like um, Movember conversations, which is a 
a conversation starter for how to talk to guys. And that's on our website, november.com. And it's, it's literally like a, a text based situation, which is like, how am I going to respond to a guy who's denying that he's, you know, drinking a lot more or isolated or whatever it may be? Cause so many people always say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, how to connect with him. And so we tried to give you some of those words. Um, we've also got family man, uh, making dad part of the plan. Our slogans are just off chops. I love it. And so there's, uh, there's um, that program is focused on, on upskilling dads, uh, you know, with kids who are two to eight with behavioral issues um, and making sure that dads are really present because we know that when it comes to parenting programs, they're just all mother-led at the moment and we need dads to, to really pick up their, their game when it comes to that stuff. And then my Men in Mind program is is um, in its research phase of sorts, but um, we're going to be rolling out a pilot and then a trial um, for mental health clinicians across Australia um, to take part in this this for free. Um, so we'd love you to um, you know any of the listeners to come and, and sign up and join the join the party. Um, and uh, I can I can share the link with you, and hopefully you can you can send it out to the yeah. the people as. Yeah, happy to help uh, how we can with that. If um, if people want to get in touch with you, Zach, how how would that be possible? Um, heading to my website, zachseidler.com, um, tends okay. to be pretty useful. And just shoot me a, a message, and more than happy to to chat and hear about what's what's going on out there in the in the mental health world, as always. So, um, um, you know, I've, I'm very lucky to have a lot of support from lots of clinicians and. I'm glad that this uh, issue of, of men and masculinity is now on the, the radar. Um, I think it's it's due time. So we've got a lot of work to do. Well, we've just got two questions left for you. One is we spoke about role models earlier on in the conversation, not enough of them out there. Who is your role model or, or models? Mm. Do you have anyone that comes to mind? It's interesting. I asked this question yesterday at a school with boys and they all started listing women which I think says a lot. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, you know, my mum's an incredible, incredible woman and um, has definitely given me, given me a lot. My dad was an incredible role model, no doubt. Yeah. Um, you know, the way I've, I've picked up most of my skills from him. Yeah. Um, gift of the gab. Um, but I think uh, that I'm very lucky and I'm sure that many of the clinicians listening will know that the... Um, the space that we work in is filled with really incredible supervisors and colleagues who who give you a sense of of worth and um, make clear what your skills are and help you hone them over time and question yourself. So I've had incredible colleagues and and supervisors um, over the years, and I've got a couple now in in Canada and and Uni of Melbourne who I can ask anything um, of, and so I'm very very lucky to have them. But really, my mates are my my role models, you know. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Man, this, the second question I had for you was, as you look to the future, uh, what is what are you hoping for? What what uh, With everything going on with what you're doing and the programs that are out there, I know Movember's vision uh, and what they're striving for, the 25% reduction by 2030 for male suicide, um, really measurable and specific. But what, what's your hope for the future with uh, all the stuff that you're doing and the influence that you're able to have in, in such a challenging environment it is, a, it is a challenging environment you're not wrong i think um lots of people are, are, are trying to go we want more men to seek help as i've always said if i can um get to the point where 
we can have really good engagement and satisfaction of guys coming in to to mental health services. I uh, the best thing that I I've ever heard is I was at a pub once and I heard a guy next to me talking to his mate saying, "I just saw this incredible psych, um, and I reckon you should go and chat with him." If I can hear those conversations more commonly my job is done. Like that's, that's what it's all about. Men referring other men, you know, makes my heart sing. The idea that um, dudes sit around and they love talking about, you know, their, their physio or I saw that, you know, it's always, he did this awesome stuff. My knee's so strong now, mate. It's great. My PT. It's like, if we can get people talking about psychologists or, or counselors in the same way, man, that'll be, that'll be the day. Yeah. Mate, beautifully said, and mate, you've been so easy to talk to, uh, and I appreciate the time and and you coming on and letting us, uh, our listeners, know all about what you've been up to and and the amazing stuff that you're doing at the moment with Movember and uh, and Men in Mind and that sort of stuff that you're up to. So, mate, really uh, inspiring to hear, and thanks very much for coming and and chatting to me today. Cheers, Sam. Appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.